You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, Annie here for the fourth and last in 3CR Solidarity Breakfast summer season. This morning we hear from Giselle, one of the high school students who organised the Students for Palestine rallies in Melbourne We follow with two short speeches from the same pro-Palestinian rally on the 30th of December at the front of the Melbourne State Library, which points us to the theme of resources wars with the same colonial settler roots we see in Palestine. We go to the John Curtin front bar to hear Jeff Sparrow's speech at the Melbourne launch of Knock the Top Off, a People's History of Alcohol in Australia. We chat with Melbourne-born illusionist Michael Boyd about his Circus of Illusion. You've missed his Melbourne dates, but it is happening in Castlemaine and Canberra, and I'm sure they'll be back. We go down to the Fitzroy Flats at 140 Brunswick Street to the gathering of tenants, supporters, Yarra City councillors and their local Greens state representative as they formed the campaign against the state Labor government's announced destruction of the 44 public housing towers. We also get a catch-up on what's going on at Techno Park. Tickets are now on sale for the 2024 Marxism Conference, happening over the Easter weekend. The Marxism Conference is one of the biggest gatherings of revolutionaries, radicals and activists from around Australia and across the world. Three days of discussions, interviews and debates on key questions and themes for socialists, covering radical working class history, Marxist fundamentals, left debates and global struggles happening today. With our world entering a new era of accelerated climate crisis, economic chaos and rising imperialist tensions, it's now more important than ever for socialists and anti-capitalists to get together to discuss and debate ideas for a world in crisis. Lock in your spot to Australia's biggest socialist conference and grab your tickets now at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. We continue our coverage of Voices for Palestine as the death toll of civilians in Gaza and the West Bank continues. Giselle, one of the high school students who organised the Students for Palestine rallies in Melbourne, the largest of their kind in the world, alerted the crowd in front of the State Library in Melbourne just before New Year's Day that the students will be rallying again on the 29th of February with a combined rally with tertiary students for Palestine. Here, Giselle 
gives the speech of the day at the pro-Palestinian rally on the 30th of December. I want to give a big shout out to all of the um, activists and organizers who have been doing magnificent work with local councils. Most recently, the greater city of Dandenong, um, Jim Mehmeti and Rhonda Girard have passed the motion along with the community in support of Palestine to raise the Palestinian flag. There has been numerous city councils in which motions have passed and I just want to acknowledge all of the work that these communities have been doing. The change is you and this is where we are winning. So thank you for every effort, for every little thing that you have done to make this happen. And as we gather today, we continue to remember our people in Gaza who have died under the most horrific circumstances. People who were targeted at home, nurses, me medical staff, journalists, academics, and writers. And in the words of Rifat Al-Arir, who, who was killed, an academic, Palestinian academic professor, who was killed at home earlier this month, I would like to re read a, a brief of what he's written. If I must die, let it be hope. The death of these people, of our people, must not go to waste. If Rifat and his family and 8,000 children and 23,000 Palestinian civilians must die, we have to ensure that this is not the end. And we have to ensure that their blood does not go to waste. Their, their sacrifices do not go to waste. And what a beautiful way to think about hope. What inspires more hope than our future generations taking the lead and leading the streets of Melbourne here in Arm in a strike. Students for Palestine. How amazing, how hopeful is that? How proud are we of these young leaders who are intelligent, smart, organized and brave. I would like you to welcome Giselle Nayef, who is one of the strikers, organizers, uh, for Students Strike for Palestine. Giselle? The soldiers cursed at us and beat us. They hit me in my back. They took my family and I don't know where they are. That's what 14-year-old Muhammad told Al Jazeera after he was kidnapped by Israeli military from his home and subjected to torture. Shame! Shame! Muhammad tried pleading with the soldiers. I told them that I'm just a kid that goes to school. But his words fell on deaf ears. He spent five days held hostage in a warehouse. They, the military numbered their victims Muhammad was number 56. 56 out of thousands of Palestinian men, women, and children who were tortured by the Israeli military. Shame! Shame! 
This is the reality of Israel's genocide. There is no one or nothing off limits. Schools and hospitals continue to be bombed. Places of refuge turned into rubble. And kids younger than me rounded up, beaten and starved like cattle. Shame! Shame! My name's Giselle, I'm 17, and I'm here today as a representative of school students for Palestine. I'm here today to stand with Muhammad, to stand with Gaza, and to stand with the people of Palestine. As a school student, I'm constantly told not to talk about Palestine. My teachers say it's too complicated. My government says, let us sort it out. But it doesn't take a genius to see what's going on here. Israel is committing a genocide, a second Nakba. Over 20,000 Palestinians have been murdered in less than 90 days. Half of those people being children. Muhammad's story is just one of a thousand that exposes Israel's crimes against humanity. But Israel is not the only power committing crimes against humanity. Our world leaders are greenlighting a genocide. Richard Miles recently tweeted about supporting this international rules based on based order in the Middle East. But what is the rules based order? It's an order that says if you have a power that is friends with the West, you can get away with anything. You can besiege an entire population, bomb it to rubble, starve them, do whatever you want. It's an order that sees our politicians, our politicians mutter platitudes about international humanitarian law while sending hundreds of military exports to Israel. It's an order that sees our government stand on the side of the genociders against those who are being genocided. Will I say fuck your international rules-based order? I choose to stand with Palestine, to stand with the right side of history. I helped organize the biggest school walkout in solidarity with Palestine in the world. 2,000 students walked out of school and marched, not only in solidarity with Palestine, but publicly condemning our government. As students, we were stuck, confined to a school, being forced to desensitize videos of people dying every day. People acting like we're hallucinating when we call out what's happening in this world full of injustice. But the world doesn't have to be like this. As students, as people, as workers, we have power. We have power to disrupt this system, to fight for a better world. A world in which people like Muhammad can live peacefully. And that's exactly why we have to keep going. As genocide, as the situation in Gaza gets worse, we need to keep using our voice. On the 29th of February, 
School Students for Palestine will join Students for Palestine, the university group, at the State Library to protest. We will make it loud and clear that we will not comply with this disgusting government. We will not stop fighting until we see a free Palestine, until the siege is lifted from the West Bank, until the genocide ends in Gaza, and until this government cuts ties with Israel. Free, free Palestine! 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 You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast 3CR the last in our summer season of programs. We were listening to Giselle, a student organiser of the Student for Palestine rallies in Melbourne. She was speaking at the December 30th rally for Palestine in Melbourne. At the pro-Palestinian rallies, the message of shared experiences of Indigenous peoples against the continuing onslaught and legitimising of the settler colonial project has meant the stage each recent week in Melbourne has been shared with other communities fighting for the same battle as the Palestinians, West Papua, Myanmar and Sudan. At the same rally we, we were listening to when we heard Giselle, we also heard from two students, tertiary students. They were talking about the war in Sudan, which has a rather creepy similarity with what's happening in Palestine and also heightened the focus on what can now be seen increasingly as resources wars, which are being disguised as localised ethnic or religious wars with military resources and support coming from outside actors with local citizens bearing the brunt of the carnage and the propaganda machine ignoring or covering up the economic interests involved. This is what they said about the war in Sudan. Our next speakers have been extremely active on campus. They have done outstanding job in terms of raising awareness for the Palestinian cause uh, on campuses across the country. I would like to welcome Hiba and Muhammad. <laughs> Hiba is from Eritrea and Sudan. She fled Libya's war in 2011 and became a refugee. As the ex-president of the University of Melbourne Student Union, she advocated for pro-Palestine and BDS motions. Muhammad, who is a Sudanese man who has been an advocate in the University of Melbourne as well, of student union spaces for five years, and is an organizing member of Uni of Melbourne for Palestine. Big round of applause for Hiba and Muhammad. Thank you for being here with us today. We want to first start by acknowledging that we're standing, organizing, and fighting for change on the lands of the Wurundjeri people and Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to the elders, past and present, and extend that respect to any First Nations people here with us today. We want to talk to you about Sudan. 
a nation gripped with a dire crisis that demands our immediate attention. Today, we bring to you the harsh reality of a war that has been raging in Sudan for eight long months. A war that isn't silent, but is forgotten. As we speak, Sudan is pleading, and our people are suffering unimaginable horrors. In April this year, Sudan finds itself caught in a deadly conflict between the Sudanese armed forces and the rapid support forces. What began as a power struggle has evolved into a devastating war with international actors, including the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Israel, Russia, and Egypt, supporting conflicting factions. Led by the Sudanese armed forces, a war on the rapid support forces has started, but instead of protecting the Sudanese civilians, they handed over areas to the militias, targeting civilians and leaving them to endure a siege and brutality of the rapid support forces. The conflict toll is staggering. Over 12,000 lives lost, 5.4 million people displaced within Sudan, and another 1.3 million outside its borders. Almost 25 million people, more than half of Sudan's population, are in desperate need of humanitarian aid. Aid, sorry. To put it into perspective for you, that's the equivalent to the entire population of Australia. The roots of this crisis delve into a history of ethnic cleansing in Darfur, where the rapid support forces was born from the Sudanese army during the Omar al-Bashir's dictatorship resulting in a death toll in Darfur that has exceeded 400,000 with at least 30 cities completely destroyed since 2003. It's crucial to understand that this is just a, merely a conflict of power. It's a proxy war. Regional actors, including the UAE, are exploiting Sudan's resources, contributing to the death toll and displacement. The UAE is supporting the rapid support forces with weaponry and funding them to continue to destruct Sudan. The scenes of displacement are so strikingly similar to what's happening in Palestine right now. People are carrying what little they can, leaving behind their homes and possessions, echoing in the plight of those in Gaza. Displaced families, men, women, children, the elderly, the disabled, are sleeping on the grounds in crowded markets, facing not only bullets, but also starvation, disease, sexual violence, and a lack of medical care. This isn't a silent war. It's a forgotten one. Sudan has been screaming for eight long months, and as one city falls, the war machine moves on to the next. The suffering is not confined to one displacement. People are being uprooted multiple times, moving from Khartoum toward Medani and Sinar. Our people are suffering. Every Sudanese person here has had family impacted by what's happening. Our people are being massacred. The external involvement doesn't end there. Israel's intelligence is aiding the militia creating a sinister alliance that mirrors the tragic scenes from Sudan and Gaza. There's an intentional media blackout, with the RSF cutting off communication to suppress civilians from speaking out and documenting their genocide. The RSF's propaganda machine is in full swing, spreading false narratives on social media, praising their actions and claiming to be liberators. 
Hospitals and journalists are being targeted, with over 70% of hospitals in Sudan now being non-functional. These RSF tactics mirror those of the Israeli occupation forces, with a sheer disregard for civilian lives. The international community's involvement is disheartening, as figures like Hameti, the RSF leader, implicated in past atrocities, continue to be legitimized. The world must not turn a blind eye to Sudan's plight. It's time for us to stand together, raise our voices, and demand to end this senseless violence. The people of Sudan deserve our attention, our empathy, and our unwavering support. Let us not forget the silence in the face of such atrocities is not an option. We have two demands for the Australian government to list the RSF as a terrorist organization and demand the immediate ceasefire and transition to civilian rule. From the Nile River to the Mediterranean Sea, may we see a Sudan and Palestine liberated, peaceful, and free. You're with Annie on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast. We have just been listening to Hiba and Mohammed, two university students who spoke at the pro-Palestinian rally in Melbourne on the 30th of December. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. like this I almost forget I just went five minutes with a hit answer in my head and then like a solid punch in the guts I remember I remember I remember and think how could I forget oh I remember when he was only five laying the table with the good forks and knives and it's different when you know that it's different different when you know them It's different when you know them The Camry in the driveway hasn't started for six months It's got a plastic sheet for a window From the night he punched it And now it takes three buses to get to the facility 
But I still make the trip Three times a week And I remember I remember I remember the phone call When I finally knew Felt like a screen door hanging open The wind just blew right through me When I get home I open up his room The afternoon sun shines on Skeletor and Dr. Doom And I know what it's like to hold Your own flesh and blood How could he do that to the little body that he loved And it's different I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. You're with Annie on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast, the last in our summer season of programs. Just before Christmas, independent publisher Interventions launched Knock the Top Off, a people's history of alcohol in Australia, edited by Alex Edling and Ian McIntyre. Of course, the book was launched in Melbourne in the public bar at the John Curtin Hotel. Where else? And this morning we pluck out one of the highlights of the ceremony with contributor to the book and fellow author Jeff Sparrow giving his own slant on its role in propping up bookshelves across the world. All right, keeping the show on the road, Dr Jess Sparrow is a writer, editor and broadcaster, a former editor of Overland Literary Journal. He now works at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. His books include Crime Against Nature, Capitalism and Global Heating, Provocations, New and Selected Writing, and the forthcoming 12 Rules for Strife, a collaboration with artist Sam Warman. Welcome, Jess Sparrow. Thanks for that, um, Alex. Uh, this book has had um, more launches than yeah. NASA. I'm pleased to say that I was attending the Canberra event, and I know that there are some people here who are also at that event, so I'll try not to repeat myself, and I, hopefully I won't keep you um, too long. But since then, I've had the opportunity to actually read the book at... Um, uh, which I hadn't done before, and can I say it's um, it's a cracker. It's a book that begins by talking about convicts and rum and ends by talking about fascists and beer and thus covers more or less the entirety of Australian culture. <laughs> but I was particularly glad when I was reading it to 
look at uh, Alex's accounts of early Australian socialism, a chapter in which he talks about the visit of the great English socialist Tom Mann to Australia. When Mann was travelling around the country, whipping up great enthusiasm, recruiting people to the Victorian Socialist Party, his enemies spread a story that Mann had been charged in England with selling adulterated beer in the pub that he owned. And I like that story because you could not get a more perfect image of sort of proletarian perfidy than selling watered-down beer to, to, to workers. And actually, in fact, this is a charge with a long history. If you look at the Code of Hammurabi, 1700 BC, which the Babylonians laid out their system of law and justice, one of the offences that they list is in fact pertaining to tavern keepers who uh, cheat work, cheat uh, customers out of the beer that they buy. In the Code of Hammurabi, the penalty for uh, selling adulterated beer is in fact death. <laughs> Mind you, in the Code of Hammurabi, the penalty for just about everything is, is, is death. But it also goes to how seriously the ancients took their beer. I don't know if anyone's read the uh, Epic of Gilgamesh, but at one point in that, uh, in that Sumerian story, uh, one of the, the Sumerian gods tries to tell Gilgamesh that he should not be uh, searching for the secret of eternal life, but in fact should satisfy himself with mortal pleasures. One of the mortal pleasures that the gods tell him that he should satisfy himself with is drinking beer. And again, it's such a perfect image. You can imagine Gilgamesh saying, yeah, I'm going to go out there and find the secret of eternal life. And someone's saying, no, nah, mate, stay home, have a, have a beer instead. And it also goes to the importance of alcohol in the ancient world. In fact, some anthropologists say that in the fertile crescent, the transition from hunter-gatherer societies to agriculture was inspired not by a desire to produce food, but by a desire to brew beer, with the first crops being barley and hops and, and so on and so forth. And the reason why I mention that is it goes to one of the major themes of the book, this eternal question for the left. Is alcohol progressive or is alcohol reactionary? Because, you know, from a sort of Marxist perspective, you can think about that transition from hunter-gatherer society, agriculture, you say, well, okay, expanding the productive forces, this is good, leading to the formation of classes in the state, this is bad. And again and again, when you think about alcohol, the same problem comes up. The other example that came to my mind was to do with uh, British sailors. I'm sure you've probably heard the argument that um, the British sailing vessels were sort of precursors to the modern factory, these tremendously complicated machines. Sailors were paid wages, they're early wage labourers. They're on sea, they're, they're sailing across the Atlantic for months at a time, 
and intense class conflicts were fought between the officers and the men. Those class conflicts were again and again mediated through alcohol. So in the 17th century, it became established that every seaman would be allowed a certain allocation of alcohol. And when I say allowed a certain allocation of alcohol, I mean that before 12, the entire ship's company would line up 10 o'clock or 11 in the morning and everybody on the ship would be given half an imperial pint of rum. So that's essentially about half a bottle of modern spirits. I worked it out about uh, nine standard drinks, 10 o'clock in the morning, and then up the rigging in an Atlantic gale to sail ship for the rest of the day. So, you know, um, the, the British Admiralty eventually realised this was perhaps suboptimal to have their ships crewed by basically functional alcoholics. But, you know, as late as the 19th century, the, the thirst of the British seamen was so well known that when... Um, at the Battle of Trafalgar, when uh, Nelson was killed, his uh, colleagues decided they would bring him back to England for a public funeral. And in order to facilitate that, they would put him in a barrel and fill the barrel up with brandy so that his body would be in good condition to be displayed. And a persistent rumour circulated that by the time the ship had got back to England, the sailors had bored a hole in the barrel and drunk all of the brandy. So again, I put it to you, we can understand this in two ways, as an act of class struggle in which these sailors had shown their antipathy to the ruling class on the ship by essentially sucking them dry, or alternatively, we can understand this as an illustration of how much alcohol had degraded the sailors that they were prepared to drink the uh, brandy in which Admiral Nelson had been pickled. Now, I don't propose to settle that question for you, but I would suggest if you want to think about the role of alcohol in human history, then this book is a tremendous resource with which to start. I, I mean, I, I said in the Canberra launch that we can think about um, Henry Lawson's famous passage about how beer is something that makes you feel how you should feel when you don't have beer. And we can interpret that to say that beer is in some ways a source of conviviality, a source of sociality, and in some ways a precursor of the better society that we are trying to make. So and so uh, progressive. Alternatively, however, the other way of understanding um, Lawson's dictum is that beer is something that gets in the way of the kind of society that we want to make. So instead of building a better society, we drink ourselves stupid instead. So I don't mean to um, settle that question for you, but I would suggest that in this book we have a huge variety of authors tackling that question, and it's of more than historic interest. It's not simply that alcohol still plays a very important role in Australian life, but similar arguments can be made about the role of drugs, but also, say, the role of religion and the role of sport. In, both, in all of those um, 
issues, the same kinds of questions emerge. And I think this book, it's full of funny stories, it's full of humorous anecdotes, but it's also a serious resource for people who are trying to tackle those questions. So that's about all I want to say. I would just finish by suggesting that um, unlike the beer in Tom Mann's pub, this book is not watered down, it's not adulterated, it is full strength radicalism, you're not going to be cheated if you buy it, it's full of uh, uh, high potency content, so buy a copy for yourself and shout one to one of your comrades. You are with Annie on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast. We've been listening to Jeff Sparrow as he gave his speech at the Melbourne launch of the book Knock the Top Off, A People's History of Alcohol in Australia, edited by Alex Edling and Ian McIntyre. It is available from 3CR, or good bookshops, and is published by Interventions.
You're back with Annie on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast, the last in our summer season of programs. We now go to a chat I had with illusionist and entrepreneur Michael Boyd, Melbourne-born, just back from Vegas with his Circus of Illusions. I am afraid you missed his Melbourne dates because of summer season confusions, but they will be back and have dates in Castlemaine and Canberra. Keep alert for others. I was looking into uh, your Circus of Illusions in your past. It's obviously a family affair, this magic and illusion. Can you give my listeners a little bit of an understanding how a person becomes entertainer, entrepreneur in the international stage from from their beginnings in Melbourne? Sure. Well, show business is in the blood as my grandfather and amazingly his grandfather were magicians and travelling showmen. My uh, grandfather, who was my hero when I grew up, um, toured in the 1930s and 1940s with a silent movie and half-silent movie, half-magic show. So growing up, he became my hero and um, he started to teach me, I guess, the tricks of the trade. And that's uh, how I took on the family business, uh, quite an odd family business, and now travel the world with all these different shows. Well, it's pretty remarkable. There was I didn't know that there was a young magician school. That's right. The young magicians was like the Hogwarts of, of my day where we were learning the school of the, tr- the traditions of magic in presentation and all the tricks that you do. It, I have great memories of that. And um, yeah, I grew up for many years with the Young Magicians Magic School, honing my craft with other like-minded people, which was also amazing too, to meet other young people who are interested in the same passion that I have. Yeah, which is like a parallel universe, really. And I noticed that um, in your Instagram, you call yourself an entertainer, entrepreneur, illusionist, producer, father, adventure hunter. And and it seems to me that um, being able to uh, do magic is one thing and to do a solo show is another. But you've taken it to a different level, haven't you? Because we're in the modern world. That's right. I started out as the magician and travelling the globe with, that, with, with a magic act, an illusion show, going all throughout Asia and on the cruise ships and in the casinos. And then later on, um, stepped up the role as producer, where I started producing shows for these, hiring the showgirls, renting out the theatres, uh, getting the publicists and the advertising people. And I actually really love it, all the aspects of this business. It obviously was a step sideways, but I'm still on stage and I love that part of it because I'm involved in every single aspect. And the people I'm working with are my dearest and nearest friends and they're the best in the business. So it's no secret sauce. I get great acts, great lighting designers and brilliant dancers and costumes and just, um, you know, put them on a stage, set set it right and there's the recipes for success. And it's a collaboration, isn't it? Because you're creating a total show that's like an art piece, but it's got individual parts. There's lots of moving parts in the show, and that is exactly right. It is a collaboration. I don't, I always say, I don't come up with all the ideas. I'm like the bus rider with the best people on the bus. So we all have the input, and it's up to me to decide which parts to use and, and how, to, uh, how to set them and give the acts what they need. Um, it really is a huge collaboration, and um, uh, I love that part of it too. It's very creative, and seeing the end result... Um, which you can also, being in the show and on stage, just tweak finally, moving an act here or there or cutting an extra 30 seconds just to make the the show really pop. 
And, uh, yeah, I love working with the people in my team. It's one of the best things I have, the, the collaboration and hanging out with your best friends and creating these incredible shows on stage that we all love being part of. Everyone has input. Now, you, you say stage, and that's something we'll return to, but a TV's had a really big impact on creating uh, your trajectory, hasn't it? Tell us about that. Absolutely. Um, a few years ago, I was on Australia's Got Talent, uh, which is uh, obviously a really big deal, and obviously a really big deal for an established actagon because it was so scary. You're really putting yourself out there. If the judges say, this is old hat magic show, you live with that for years. So I was so scared to go on this show. Probably one of the biggest things that I did because really you're putting it all out there. And um, luckily, the judges loved me and it propelled me to a new level. So I started working all over Asia and the acts. We upped the acts up, got better illusions and just as always keep reinventing this craft and making it current, as you said, for today's audiences. It's amazing that magic and circus are still relevant and I think more so than ever in this crazy world that we live in because people want escapism. They want to get away from the everyday and they want to just, you know, go, wow, it'd be amazing to fly or disappear or reappear. It really is um, having, uh, it's, it's more popular than ever. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, especially if you think about it in a philosophical way, because it's about uh, uh, reality versus uh, uh, illusion. Um, and uh, it, it, it's really quite important to people to be able to deal with both. Absolutely. And really, uh, the real trick, I always say, is making the audience disappear. What I mean by that is making their worries disappear, their bills, the family events that are going on, their work stresses. That all dissipates. And I love seeing a family there where the kids look up at the mum and dad with an a, a, a expression of awe and go, how did that happen? And there's a connection between the audience and the performer on stage. That is the real magic of what I do, taking them away from their everyday, reconnecting them together as a group and letting them experience something that's very special. One of the things that I was interested in is that you've just come from a Las Vegas show. Um, I was really interested in the versatility of the um, uh, venues that you use because, um, you know, bigger, smaller, you're on um, cruise ships and now you're at uh, Crown for a couple of shows. Um, the palms at the crown. This is a really interesting ability for your show to uh, expand and contract, practically speaking. It's part of the business too. You have to be versatile in this industry and um, work for those big casinos like um, like Crown, the palms at Crown, a beautiful venue. Just so is the State Theatre in Sydney. We also produce shows, absolutely glorious venues. And sometimes we're doing some regional because those people need to be entertained. So we're doing Geelong at the brand new Arts Centre there, the Playhouse, and also Canberra, um, a great market in Canberra as well. So you really have to be uh, adaptable and flexible. And that goes with the team that I work with. And it goes, I guess, with the years and years of experience in working in many different venues and not going working out the challenges, I guess, at each, each venue. And I love that part too because it keeps you on your toes. Yeah, well, it's pretty extraordinary, I reckon. Uh, I just, it, it, circus is just great. I love circus. But uh, having it indoors and accessible at a reasonable price is actually great as well. <laughs>
We've taken that other tangent, put it on the stage, and the, the ability and the things that you can do away from a circus tent, putting on a theatrical environment, is incredible. But we still bring elements. We bring our own. The backdrop is a tent, like a circus ring tent. So it still has that circus feel, and you can smell the popcorn while you're sitting there, but a lot more comfortable. There's no sawdust in at Crown. Um, and also then the lighting and the special effects that we can do in that environment really ramp up the show. And what I love with it too, the balance of having the magic where you go, how did they do that? Whereas you see these incredible circus acts that have skills that you go, in a million years, I could never do that. So there are real great contrast in, in magic, which is fantasy, and the skill set that goes with a circus performer and years and years of experience. And they are world-class acts. And, of course, top that with our ringmaster, he keeps the show rolling along. Yeah, so it's, it's a melding of convention, tradition and the modern world. 100%. Um, it's made for today's audience, but it still has those traditional elements. And the tradi traditional elements are really great acts. You can't go wrong in a great setting. And the acts, like I say, are world-class. Sasha Williams does a roller-roller act. He was from Britain's Got Talent in the UK, and he is a daredevil act. And when you see his act, it's absolutely incredible what he can do on a stage. And I love seeing the audience gasp and scream because it looks like he's going to fall off. I think he's going to fall down. <laughs> uh, tell me, um, just as a matter of interest, I mean, uh, in the Asian audiences and uh, European audiences, they have a very high level of uh, commitment to circus skills. Uh, how has your show fitted in with all those uh, ideas? It is the same. We have some fantastic facilities here in Australia, in Melbourne. We have the NICA Circus School, and a lot of the acts start out there where they learn the basics of, of, of how to do it, the A to Z, with world-class from around the world teachers who are teaching them the skills of the circus. And then added to that, they then go off and travel. Most of the acts I work with are over in Europe. They're over in Asia. They are the acts that are hired in demand around the world. I'm very, very lucky. I've worked with them all, so I only get the best of the best on stage, and they are of equal level. One of the things I'll say with Australian performers is they have, I think, far better presentation skills. Asian acts are absolutely brilliant, but in my opinion, sometimes lack the creative and the presentation skills, whereas in Australia, we have our own unique twist on the presentation, and that's really what sets the bar different. Oh, yeah, okay. Well... Thank you very much for talking to me. Have I asked you all the things that I should be asking you? You've asked everything. All I could say is everybody needs come one, come all, roll up, roll up to Circus of Illusion. Our favourite Texas singing cowboy, Charlie Crockett, returns to Melbourne this February for a huge night at the Forum. Charlie and his band, The Blue Drifters, will deliver another scorching night of timeless country classics and Wild West tales on February the 12th with country soul queen, Emma Donovan. Charlie Crockett and Emma Donovan at The Forum in February. Good times. Tickets on sale now. Love Police is a 3CR supporter. You're back with Annie on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast, the last in our summer season of programs. The last part of the show is going to follow up public housing and the rising anger at the forcing of residents from their homes by government action in Victoria. 
I went down to the gathering at the Fitzroy Flats, 140 Brunswick Street, on December the 23rd, where tenants, supporters, Yarra City Councillors and their local Greens state representative were gathered to form the campaign against the state Labor government's announced destruction of the 44 public housing towers. But before we hear from them, let's first catch up with Lara, who was there from the Techno Park Residents Group, who last May were told to vacate their homes by their local council. We covered the story, and this is what Lara had to say on the 23rd of December. G'day, how are Lara. you? Yeah, I do. Actually, we're, what's, we're, where's Techno Park in Fulham? In Williamstown, um, you know where the uh, uh, J. Gray Reserve is? On the Corroy Creek? Yeah. Um, or where there's some there's some mobile tanks yeah, as yeah, well yeah. Um, on the creek. And it's just, there used to be the Williamstown Migrant Hostel. Yeah, yeah, Wiltona. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it was yeah. Williamstown, then Altona, yeah. and then Wiltona. Yeah, yeah. So people still live in the Wiltona buildings. Yep. And um, have lived there ever since, you know. Some of my neighbours have been there for 25 You're in that, years. That's where you are. Yeah. And, and so what happened? And then in May, our council all of a sudden sent a letter to everyone saying, you've got to leave today, you can't live here because of the zoning that's been the same since 1988. It's dirty. It's horrible. It's really horrible. And they've been... These are not public housing, these are privately that's owned. That's right, they're privately owned. There's renters and owner-occupiers and they told everyone to get out. We put our petition in to uh, stop the eviction of Techno Park and got a response from the council back in October. Uh, what they responded was um, basically nothing about the content of their petition. The council officers just advised that we, the council, kick us out in May um, of 2024. And um, they also announced that they weren't going to be answering any more questions to the public about Techno Park because uh, of legal sensitivity apparently and uh, for the same reason they said the councillors would hold their vote on kicking us out in May next year in secret which is what they did. So councillors agreed to kick us out in May and we don't know who, who agreed to and who voted against it. That's all um, private information apparently and since then they've said they won't answer any public questions. We keep asking them, we keep asking questions that don't even mention Techno Park um, about the the safety of the tank farm that it turns out is empty next to Techno Park, you know, for the children's soccer ground that's on the opposite border, for the Corroy Creek which is on the adjacent border of the tank farm. They won't answer any of those questions. We've asked about uh, the Hobson's Bay Caravan Park, which was on industrial land down the street from us for 40 years and permitted by the council. Why they allowed that if they're saying now all of a sudden we have been there for more than 30 years, can't remain, and they won't answer that question. Uh, just on another level, if they're privately owned properties, are they going to actually uh, pay you to go? No. The other thing is, I noticed that there was a councillor from another council who put in an advisory regarding a, a method of overlay that would bypass the problems that your council has. That's right. Oh, in, so in Abbotsford, so uh, councillor Stephen Jolly, who's from the city of Yarra here actually, um, was involved in a, in a similar issue in the city of Yarra where um, there were some people living in Abbotsford in townhouses built in an industrial area 
and um, eventually the outcome was that the council uh, put a planning amendment to the state government to put a what's called a specific controls overlay. It basically means that um, they don't have to change the zoning of the area. They can just uh, make an exception for those buildings to have people remaining living in them. Our council could certainly do that. But actually, even simpler than that, what we've recently learned is that we very likely had existing use rights. You know, the right to continue to live there because it has been residential for so long. And that what the council has done instead of asking us to apply for them to affirm our existing use rights, which they could have done, and which many councils have uh, the form on their website to do, not Hobson's Bay Council, in, they, they could have asked us to make those applications and that would have solved their zoning problem. Do you have any suspicions about why your council is doing this? <laughs> I know they're just suspicions. Um, it's very hard to understand really what they're trying to achieve and why now? I mean, all that we can understand is that, um, you know, we're next to, next to some land owned by Mobile uh, that had a tank farm on it that is now no longer, you know, going to be operational. Mobile said in a community session, in fact, that they're going to start pulling those tanks down next year and um, may then sell off the land. So, uh, all I can understand is that they don't want us getting in the way of some other big development on the site next door. So they didn't initiate it? No, the councillors didn't initiate it. It was the Hobson's Bay Council officers. They say, you know, it's just regular kind of enforcement, like giving a parking ticket, which in some ways technically perhaps it is, but it's so not that because they've enabled people to live on, you know, on this site for decades before that. So, and of course their enforcement is not a parking ticket, it's the displacement of a hundred people from their homes, you know, and mostly people who really won't have anywhere else to go. Technopark has a lot of um, older people in their 70s who own their property outright, who would never be able to get another mortgage, you know, or afford a rental on a pension, you know. Um, and it's a very close-knit community that means that people are able to live independently because they have one another. Uh, I was saying the CEO of Hobson's Bay Council could have at any time intervened and put a stop to it. So um, whether or not he's initiated it, I don't know, but he's certainly kept it going. And you're not planning on leaving? We're not planning on leaving, no. You're with Annie on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast. We've just been catching up with Lara about what has been happening for residents over at Techno Park near Williamstown who had joined Fitzroy Tower residents as they and their supporters and local representatives rallied against the Victorian state government's intention to destroy their homes. First up, Yarra councillor Michael Glenartis. The, the rally's been called because of the uh, government's decision to uh, uh, demolish 44 towers and, uh, and this happens to be one of them. This is one of four here, which has been renovated uh, by Mr Wynne when he was... Uh, uh, planning minister a few years back, and we, we believe that. Uh, well, we believe I believe that uh, no town should be uh, demolished. And uh, where are these people going to go? This is, you know, that's one of the reasons why we want to explain to the people why they're doing it, 
and uh, if they've got any questions, or any, so that we can all rally together and stop this uh, uh, chaotic, uh, greedy uh, uh, government. So you think it's because it's such prime land? I mean, it's a lovely time at the it's moment. Beautiful. All the green, all the green open space will disappear because it'll be double the amount of people that uh, the, the private enterprise will put up, and uh, all these people will be disadvantaged and uh, be thrown out to God knows where they're going to go, where they put them. I was reading a book that said that at Christmas time, anything that's bad seems extra bad, and and when it's good, it seems extra good. And I suppose that's one of the reasons why it was a good idea to have a rally today, because people must be quite scared. Oh, well, you know, the, the, these people are very scared here, and they don't know what's, what's going to happen tomorrow. So it's their livelihood, their, their communities will be uh, broken and everything. So it's, it's a terrible time of the year for them. So you're a councillor. Yes. You obviously had no information about this. Absolutely no information whatsoever. It just came out of the blue and it was announced. Now, I know this government also has been working to try and get local councillors and noses out of developments like this. Well, they could say whatever they like, you know, council, this, this is the, we represent the people. I, I uh, was voted in by the people and I, I will look after the uh, people's interests, not, not council's interests. So this is the beginning of a campaign? Correct, yes, yes. A good campaign, hopefully. A couple of the councillors will be here shortly. And Anna Mohammed, she'll be here shortly. And... Um, Bridget O'Brien should be here as well. Thank you. Thank you. Could you talk to my listeners a little bit about what's going on here, Bridget? Um, this is a, another rally that we're holding or a gathering to discuss the proposed demolition of the 44 housing towers across the, all of Victoria, 11 or 12 of which are actually in the city of Yarra. I think the residents are really concerned about it because people just received a flyer in their letterboxes or so on and that's the only thing they heard about it. No public meetings were held, nothing like that. Obviously people who live in these towers have communities amongst themselves and are a very important part of the broader Yarra community but at any rate the real concern I think for many of the residents is where will they be displaced to? Where will they be going? Will they be going as a whole community or not? And will anyone be able to come back to live where they previously had and have established roots? And that's a much bigger issue for the whole, for the broader community as well, because obviously the residents that live in these um, towers really contribute significantly to the broad diversity that is so special to, about what makes Yarra so special. Um, it's interesting too that this is a really lovely uh, space. Uh, and obviously uh, different count governments have had their eye on this land for a, quite a while and they've been shoved off a couple of times. Um, also the state government has tried to pass legislation or has passed legislation trying to get local councillors' noses out of this, this kind of business. What's your view on this? Um, I think councillors, as the true representatives of the local community, the elected representatives actually do have a part to play in all, all matters around planning issues. I mean, obviously, we're the closest arm of government to the community. The community talks to us extensively about what sort of development they want um, in their municipalities and also uh, the experts on our streets. So basically know the streets better than anyone and therefore, you know, know what would be appropriate for 
the particular community and in terms of things like amenity, public transport, all of that sort of stuff, often when big developments happen, like what happened at the Amcor site, there's very little public transport for all those people that have moved into that site, for example. So, you know, they're things that local government knows a lot about. No, it, it, it's interesting because uh, uh, at the uh, Collingwood rally that preceded this, they were talking about 10,000 people being displaced and we're in a housing shortage. The government's pri uh, public-private uh, um, enterprise arrangements about, around development of uh, housing stock really hasn't worked. I agree with you and I think that is one of the major concerns is what will be happening on these housing estates? Will it be privatised? I mean, I think it is. A, and it, will it mean the end of public housing as we know it? I mean, that's a huge concern, I think, for our whole community. Good afternoon. My name's Troy and I was delivering pamphlets about this rally the other day and there was a lady that was in one of the flats here and she was very concerned that about the... and she's from the Horn of Africa lady and she was very concerned that if the houses get pulled down or the flats get pulled down that she was going to go like into an internment camp uh, bizarre and uh, and I, I assured her that that will not happen that but because she's come from a, a wanton country she's come over here that, that's where we need, we need some clarity we need some clarity from the from the government you know what's going on uh, where are these people going to go if the places do get um, if the places do get pulled down, what are they going to go up to this, um, this place in Mickleham or what have you, you know? And, um, and it's just a mental health. Uh, it's interesting that a government can just make, decide that it's going to do this against all the uh, community uh, representations. Now, isn't it, isn't it um, quality of life that, you know, that, that you've got a house, you know, when you lock your door, when you, lock it, when you turn your key, you're safe. And when you've got people doing this, it's very frustrating. Well, yeah, I might have some interesting points because I grew up in commission housing. Um, I grew up in commission housing my whole life. Uh, my family's from Iraq and we were displaced by war. Um, there was also, you know, family issues. So, so we had to live in, um, you know, refuges uh, for about seven years. And the big problem about that was um, settling. We were constantly moved around. Uh, went to about went to five primary schools when I was younger, so I never made any friends. It was hard to kind of um, have any kind of development at all. Um, so I had a learning disability, which is directly linked to being moved around so much. And um, what I could see happening with this, if, if all these people here, so many people who are the backbone of the community, get displaced, it's gonna not only displace the community, the people we rely on here, you know, the hospitality workers, the people, like, because this is literally, the, the, these towers is what Our makes village, it village, it's town, right? It is, and without these people, all you, you'll notice that staff will start disappearing, people will go, like, you know, the area will get worse. It'll actually get worse um, by mo moving these people out because they'll move out to other areas and they'll, they'll try to get their footing again, just like I did when I grew up. And I couldn't get my footing because I was getting, you know, I was moving from place to place and eventually things like that became, um, started becoming drug and alcohol abuse issues and, you know, um, behavioural issues and things like that. And that's, what's, that's exactly what's going to happen to these people um, if they get displaced. And, I, and I've seen it and I've, I've, I'm a living example of it. Um, the people that have lived here for over, you know, 30, 40, 50 years um, have made this community and the people who come in and um, want to move into this community because it's got something that they don't see, that the community hasn't got, 
Well, they don't realise what they're actually doing to the community by coming in and gentrifying it. They're actually changing the culture of the community and they'll turn around one day and realise within themselves what they've done to the area and then they'll probably just try to move somewhere else and do the same thing somewhere else because they'll like what another area looks like, you know. That's what gentrification is. It's people constantly not happy where they are, so they just want to move somewhere else where the sprawl is and, then, and, and, and they don't really care about the people they displace in the process. I'm from 3CR. Um, and I mean, if you want to, you could translate what she wants to tell me. But um, I'm keen to find out why people are here and uh, how you're feeling about the announcement that the state government made about the towers. Because they have the sense that tomorrow could be out in the streets again. This is the main reason. And it's a reason of mortality and how ethical it is. That's all. So how long have you guys been here? One and a half year. Okay, and so uh, this was a, a, a great to have stability? Absolutely, absolutely. It's a life's plan, actually. And uh, a major help for people that they don't have a roof over their head. Yeah. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. Thanks for talking to me. No problems. How are you? Good. How are you feeling about what's going on and why have you come out here? Um, well, I've come out here to, to give support to the, the, the push to have them not not knocked not, not down. Um, there's some pretty strong communities here, the people that rely on each other being so close to one another. And um, I'm, I'm just a bit concerned everyone's going to be scattered to the winds a bit. As well as, um, I mean, there, there is the option that you could... That, like the, the promise that you might get a better place, some place with an outdoor space or a balcony or something like that. But I think you can always transfer if that's what you want to do. You know, There's, they should knock down these flats because it's a really strong communities here. Yeah, and also you could have maybe is a promise and they haven't actually been that uh, good at keeping their promises. Yeah, I like, that's what my mum said, not to worry that they might not knock them down anyway because they never stay true to their promises anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, aren't we supposed to be in a, uh, a housing shortage at the moment? Why would you want to get rid of all these like building, these buildings? With, there's, there's apartments that don't have people living in them up here, up here. So, I mean, like maybe we should think about working towards capacity before we start knocking buildings down and, and being worried about not being able to house the people that we do have out there. Also, the cost, um, the rental, private rental, it's too high. Uh, it, it is a bit, and uh, like in the sense that there's a rebate and it pays a certain portion of of your um, of your rent. But if you if you earn more, then then you get ta you get basically the rebate disappears and and the rent goes up to about um, 350 uh, a week. I think even more, maybe. And, I'm not sure, but that's the last time I checked, and um, and that it just if you're trying to get ahead out there, it's, that doesn't really help. It also seems funny to me that there's all this rebate given straight over to private um, real estate or uh, house owners, you know, that are renting out. Um, why not have public housing? That sounds like a good idea to me. Um, it's subsidising lazy capitalists. Yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, we used to have a really strong public public um, 
support system in, in Victoria and we've, we've been chipping away at it for years. And, uh, you know, it's, it's cheaper not to run a profit than it is to run a profit. So I don't understand why you would want to have a whole bunch of private organisations running your, your public sphere. You're back with Annie on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast. We are down at 140 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy, where Tower residents, supporters and local councillors and state representatives are beginning their campaign to save public housing from the Victorian Labor government, sell-off to private developers and social housing operators. We hear from Yarra councillor Anab Mohammed and local Green state representative Gabriella De Vitri. And we finished the report with Sue Bolton from Socialist Alliance and the Save Public Housing Collective. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's great to see you here. Uh, you're here because you believe that we, your councillors, will be able to help you stay in your homes and we hope you're right. Your local language war councillor, Gopuru. First of all, I would like to say thank you for all coming. I think there's a lot of people that are still coming, but I think they're late with timing. But that being said, I know there's a lot of people that don't know their rules or regulations when it comes to housing. The fact is no one can move you out unless you really want to. Secondly, if they're saying that they're going to distract their house, uh, public housing, where's the homeless people? Why don't we fix the homeless issue first? Why are we seeing people sleeping on the streets? So in order for us to believe you, you have to be able to show us something believable. Get rid of the housing issue, homeless people first, give them housing, then the people that have been on the priority list for over 10 years, make sure that you sort them out too, then after that take care of the rental crisis that you're having with private housing, then after that maybe you can come, by that time I'm hoping they'll find a solution to public housing, then after that it will, be take, it will take them maybe a few years, we'll maybe be able to believe them, but till then I suggest for everybody to hold tight, don't move out, don't let them scare you, there's nothing wrong with these buildings, they're pretty fired and I'll just encourage everyone to know their rules. If they don't, come to your local councillor, someone, your, one of your representatives, whether it's your MPs or the federal government, send emails, ask questions of what your rights are. And till then, just stay true to who you are, stay true to your house. This is a community that we'll never ever get. I love this community myself, I feel like they became my family. So I will not want to move out of here unless they give me something that's stable. And the reason why we're all here is because it's very stable. Stability is what everyone's looking for. That's all. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Anab. Yeah. And Gabrielle will be speaking up soon. We have Gabrielle here. So would you like to join us, Gabrielle? Yeah. Yep, please. When it comes to public housing, there's a lot to get angry about because there are 125,000 people waiting for a home on the public housing waiting list. And that waiting list grows by about 10,000 people every year. And this Victorian Labor government's plan, instead of building more public housing for the people that need it, their plan is to demolish 7,000 homes and displace more than 10,000 people. Boo. Boo! That to me is not a plan, that is a housing disaster. That is going to make the housing crisis worse for everyone. It's going to make it harder for everyone to find a home. And when they move people out of public housing, they tell you, don't worry, you can return. 
Don't worry, you'll be paying the same rent. Don't worry, you'll be secure where you are now. Well, I know people who live in these towers who have been moved only months ago from the other towers that they've demolished and they're moving them yet again. And I know people who have been moved into so-called social housing and they end up paying private rates for rent and they end up with a, a short-term lease and no security. I know that this government will promise you things through the nose. They will tell you whatever they need to tell you to get you out because all they see is the value of this land. They see money, they see gifts for developers because that's how they win the next election, that's how they hold on to power. Yeah, they do you regret uh, with the Collingwood Town Hall when you investigate the permit and you, you didn't authorise? For the, for the private, so that was 200 homes, 160 of which were going to be private apartments. Private market rate apartments on a piece of public land. There was going to be a small handful that were going to be community housing, but no public housing. I do not regret turning that down because that was a scam. It was a scam like this was a, is a scam, 100%. This government is scamming us out of land because they see value and they want to give this land away to developers. In Fitzroy, in Collingwood, in Richmond, in North Melbourne, in Carlton, this is valuable inner city land. But I say you have just as much a right to live here as the person next to you. And we will fight to keep public housing on public land and to make sure that you have the quality of life that everyone deserves with open space, with well-maintained public housing, with the amenities and the facilities that you need, with air conditioning. I mean, how long has it been since you've been sweltering in those apartments? And two summers ago, the government promised air conditioning and where is that air conditioning? So the Greens and I have been fighting in parliament and on the ground to make sure that Labor does not sell off your land, tear down your home and rip apart your communities. And Alina, put your hand up, has started a petition. And this, many of you will have signed this petition. This is not just any ordinary petition. This is a parliamentary petition. And it's really powerful because, what it, because if we get 2,000 paper signatures, so signatures on paper, it means that we can force the Labor government to a 90-minute debate in Parliament about this project. We can force them to answer our questions. We can force them to stand up and try and justify why they are selling off your homes. And you can hold them to account. Every person who signs this petition will be invited to come into Parliament on that day and look their parliamentarians in the eye when they say that they're tearing down your homes and listen to how they lie through their teeth about their plans. We will fight with you to save your homes and I think we can win. I think we can win because we've won before. We have saved this land from private developers before. We've saved Clifton Hill. We've saved Collingwood from, being, from their basketball courts and their children's playground being built over for private apartments. And I know that we can do it again. This community is incredibly strong. I've seen how powerful you are and it will take all of us, the whole community, to fight against this. So I want you not only to put your name down here, but if you think that you can get signatures from your friends and family, then I want you to take a page as well and give me your contact details and bring it back to my office. My office is on Gertrude Street 
Um, I'm your representative in the state parliament, by the way. I should have introduced myself. I'm Gabrielle. So I'm in parliament, but I'm not with the Labor government. I'm a Sorry. Greens representative. There are eight of us, and we are all fighting really hard to, to, to stop the government from demolishing and privatising this land. Because there been a feasibility done for safety? Is there any... Uh in these properties here, in these there, there has been no feasibility study done to justify the demolition. So that's one of the things that we've asked them. We've done a um, what's called a docs motion in one of the chambers, which is basically forcing them. They've got 30 days to produce documents. It's like a it's like an FOI, like a, and they haven't produced them yet. But the, I think the date is coming soon. So we've got that coming up. We've also, we've got lots of questions that we've asked them where they've got a timeline where they have to answer. Of course, they really just cut and paste from their media releases, but we keep the pressure on. There's always said the mafia is best off in them. There's no asbestos. They're very solidly built and we're getting independent architects Better. to do a study because we had that study done um, and Margaret is one of our community champions um, who, who was an absolute pillar of the Barrack Beacon um, estate in South Melbourne, who held in Port Melbourne, thanks, who held on till the very last moment and stopped those bulldozers till the very last moment. Now, now from now in that that land is now flattened. Those buildings were solid, and we had evidence that it was feasible and cheaper and better to refurbish um, and renovate those apartments rather than knock them down. These, these public housing towers are solid buildings and we know that they will last long into the future. Of course they need to be maintained but every building does. And yeah, so we'd like to see a feasibility study. And you know, there might be justification. Yeah. There might be justification to build new public housing. But we want to see that justification on a case-by-case -case basis, not an excuse to tear down public housing and replace it with three times the amount of private housing. If you've got any questions, I'll just, I'll just, yeah. we'll just go around from, say, from... So, so a member of Socialist Alliance and also part of the Save Public Housing Collective, we can fight this. And we might have to start small, but we can fight it. And it's not just any one estate, there's 44 estates. But most people don't know each other on the estate. So people are a bit isolated from each other. And I think we need to link up all of our struggles and our battles so that we can be really strong. And if people decide collectively that we're not gonna move out, they can't move hundreds or thousands of people out. Uh, they can move one or two out or even 10 or 20, but they can't move a thousand or several hundred people out if they don't want to. But the only way we can get to that point is if tenants have the power, the broader community has the power, people in other public housing um, has the power, and we all need to get to know each other and build a strong and united campaign. And the Save Public Housing Collective, which has, I think, been in existence since um, the Walker Street estate was um, threatened with demolition, then demolished. Um, and I hadn't really been... I was in, I've been involved in public housing activism against the demolition of the walk-ups, but that, this campaign group has got a whole lot of new people wanting to fight the demolition of the high-rise. Mm. And 
Um, so I've actually got a contact list here. If anyone wants to stay in touch, um, you know, just stay in touch because we don't want to take over from, if people want to organise their own actions on estates, we don't want to take over from anyone. We just want to support what anyone's doing. But we're all non-profit. We're not government. We're not, we're not funded by anyone. It's just people after work or after school or whatever. But we really do want a, um, public housing tenants from the different estates to be able to meet up so that we can swap experiences and we can fight back. And um, we don't have lots of resources, um, but um, we had um, uh, uh, what Harold mentioned earlier, a meeting of about 70 people on the Flemington estate, the other just a few weeks back, um, and people agreed, uh, voted on a motion to oppose the demolitions and the sell-offs. Um, and we'll probably have a rally on the Flemington estate early next year sometime, no details set for it. Um, but it's gonna be really, in, and, and the three first estates that are gonna be, bulldo well, there's probably five estates gonna be bulldozed first. Two in Carlton, which are, they've already cleared everybody out, although there was uh, a couple of people who tried to fight to the end, but they were just themselves. Um, but then the next three that have got people living in them is um, Alfred Street in North Melbourne, um, 120 Racecourse Road in Flemington, and um, Holland Court in Flemington. So those are the first three that are going to be under attack. But we all need to support each other and um, really a try to... That we can look at or if you could yeah, a, web, a website? Um, yeah, Daniel. bring up a QR code. Yeah, Daniel's you. got... Um, yeah, we've, it's called... So we can come to the march. Yeah, Save Public Housing Collective. And I've got a contact list, but also um, we've got a Facebook page, an Instagram page and a website, a blog site. Yeah. Save Public Housing. Yeah, a Save Public Housing Collective. And on Facebook, I think it says the Save Public Housing Collective. Sometimes that can proxy having the word the in front. But anyway, stay in touch because we really, that's really what we've got to do. And the government hasn't provided any evidence that they're relying on people just trusting the government that the buildings are old, therefore they need to come down. But in France, uh, there was a public housing campaign to stop the government tearing down high-rise flats like these. And there was a big campaign, stop the government doing that. And there are architects who um, refurbish one flat at a time. So people just move out of their flat and move back after a few days. Now, um, so that is possible. Even they put, you know, little balconies on the outside of the building. So it is possible. Yeah. So this is possible. And I don't believe any of the government saying, oh, they're past their use by date unless they provide the evidence. So, and I think they haven't provided the evidence, which indicates to me that it's really about selling off to private developers. And uh, this is a part of the whole privatisation agenda that began in the 80s, which affected all our services, not just public housing, but that this is all part of that push. But anyway, we need to resist and the only way we can resist is coming together and we don't have lots of resources but we can work with what we've got and we've got some great activists from different public housing That's it for Solidarity Breakfast summer season of programs. Today we went to the Melbourne State Library Steps Pro 
Palestinian rally held on the 30th of December. We went to the Melbourne launch of Knock the Top Off, a people's history of alcohol in Australia. We learnt about the Circus of Illusion and finished with the fight for public housing. If you want to catch up with any of the summer season programs, they will be podcast in short order. So for now, goodbye, keep safe and talk to you live next week. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.